I'm uh, Pastor Schrader at Faith Baptist Church in Smithville, Missouri. Tonight I'm taking a few minutes to inform my church about the Asbury Revival taking place in Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury University. So these uh, thoughts are to inform my church and our people about the situation that's going on there. If it informs and helps you well, uh, it is primarily uh, for our body of Christ as I do this. In Asbury University, which is in Wilmore, Kentucky, a little below Lexington, Kentucky, they are having a revival that has gone on now for about two and a half weeks. Asbury University has been around since 1890. It was named after Francis Asbury, who lived, by the way, from 1745 to 1816. He was the father of American Methodism. So the Methodist uh, church, as it came to America, uh, Asbury was a big part of that. And so he's called that, and yet not, of course, uh, the founder of this school because it was founded in 1890, but they named it after him. Uh, it is a Wesleyan holiness school because uh, the, the Methodist movement is also known as Wesleyan, and then uh, especially in the 1800s and up to today, it's called Wesleyan holiness. Also, it educates a lot of United Methodist clergy. As a matter of fact, on one website, it said the United Methodist clergy have largely been educated at Asbury Theological Seminary. There's a college or a university there and, and a seminary. Currently, what is happening is that they had a chapel service on February 8th. And at the close of the chapel service, the students didn't want to leave. They kept singing and kept going. And uh, pretty soon, what they're calling a revival broke out. And uh, it got so large that thousands of people have descended upon uh, the little town of Wilmore to uh, watch what is happening here. As a matter of fact, uh, someone said there, there are twice as many visitors in the town as there are residents in the town. And so beginning this week, the college is announcing that the evening services, and they'll keep going, it's a 24-7 thing, they'll keep going uh, for students and uh, school-related people only. I've watched a few videos of what's going on, maybe you have too, as I see this going on in the chapel, a chapel that would probably seat about 500 people or so, but it's crowded and full, of course. As a matter of fact, there's lines of people standing around outside wanting to get in, and people are coming from all over the United States, probably even from out of the country. The, the videos that I've watched have shown basically a contemporary worship service. In other words, there's singing going on on the platform. People are some people are sitting and just listening. Other people, many hands are being raised and waved. And then the, toward the front, some of the students are kind of jumping up and down and that kind of thing, as might be typical in a holiness type of, of service. Uh, one one uh, official of the school said, though, it's getting so carried away that the public phase of this has to come to an end. That is, it can't just be for everybody in the world because uh, they can't handle everybody there at the school. Now, 
a number of people have already uh, voiced things about it uh, that have seen more than I have seen. Uh, Answers in Genesis with Ken Ham sent one of their staff members, uh, Patricia Engler, down there. She did interviews with the students, and she was there in the service. Uh, one student told her that you just need to come and experience Jesus. Another said, well, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. Of course, that's spoken of the local church, not a chapel service. She said also, though, the school is, number one, very woke. In other words, all of the current wokeness that goes on, especially in the United Methodist churches, they teach a CRT, critical race theory, in their school curriculum. They believe in theistic evolution, so you know that AIG wasn't too excited about that. They're concerned about some of those doctrinal things. Erwin Lutzer, the retired pastor of Moody Memorial Church, uh, wrote an article about it. And basically, he asked the question, what exactly are you praying for? He asked the school there. And then he goes into a, a long list of revivals that he himself has been a part of over the years and basically says, this isn't the kind of historical revivals that I know. I think that's uh, interesting from Lutzer. A man named Seth Dunn in the uh, uh, site called Pulpit and Pen that I look at often said, of course, these people teach that you can lose your salvation. Uh, they educate women ministers. They're very egalitarian in the ministry. And uh, Victor Scholler, who visited there from, uh, he's a master's seminary grad, was very concerned that Todd Bentley was involved or coming to this. I'll say more about him in a minute. The Holy Spirit, he says, is not unexplainable. When these things happen and somebody says, well, you can't explain what the Holy Spirit does, the New Testament doesn't agree with that. It's pretty clear what the Holy Spirit does. Uh, he said there was no gospel, clear gospel preached at the message that was preached at the chapel, and uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't exalt himself. He's supposed to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his uh, observation, and so there have been those and many more. I would say that sincere people can be sincerely wrong. Uh, you know, good people trying to be sincere, if they're taught the wrong thing, uh, it's kind of too bad. Now, one thing you need to know about Asbury College and the 20th century, this is the ninth time in 100 years that this same kind of thing has happened at Asbury School. The first one was in 1905, so almost... A hundred years ago, this same kind of revival took place. In 1908, the same thing happened, and it lasted for two weeks. In 1921, it lasted for three days. In 1950, it lasted for 118 hours. Somebody was watching their clock. In 1958, 63 hours. In 1970, 144 hours. And in 1992, 127 hours. So they're probably trying to break that record. So this, the eighth one was in 2006. It lasted for four days. So this is number nine uh, of these that they have had in the 20th century. It's lasted now two, two and a half weeks. Well, this is the same holiness movement, folks, that gave us, out of the Wesleyan holiness movement, that gave us the 1994 Toronto blessing, if you know something about that, or the 1995 Brownsville Revival, and the 2008 Lakeland, Florida Revival with Todd Bentley, who 
has been a defrocked minister because of his moral failures and also because his healing ministries have been uh, shown to be false. Those involved religious ecstasy, holy laughter, barking like animals, slain in the spirit and holy rolling on the floors of the church, visions and prophecies. Now, to be fair, not all the holiness Wesleyan churches uh, subscribe to those Pentecostal things, but I'm just saying it all comes from the same theology. It all comes from the same roots. Let me explain that a little bit about Wesleyan holiness theology. Two things that they have always believed for hundreds of years now is, number one, the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second work of grace, so that when you get saved, you do not receive the Holy Spirit at that time. But uh, you have to pray through and ask and, and plead for the Holy Spirit to come to you. And when he comes, that's called the second blessing or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's called a second work of grace. Now, when you have that second work of grace, then you can be entirely sanctified, entire sanctification, which means the eradication of the sinful nature, which means they believe that you can be perfect. Christian perfectionism, then, is part of their doctrine and always has been. So they have this, uh, the first work of grace is salvation. The second work of grace is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'll add a third one in just a moment. And so even uh, in the results of this revival that we're watching, one person said, uh, I want perfect love to my soul. Somebody else said, I want the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Those kinds of remarks fall in line with this uh, history. Now, it's interesting, too, that in the history of this Wesleyan holiness movement and much of the Nazarene church, uh, some of the Assemblies of God church, and much of the Pentecostal churches are in this uh, movement. In the 19th century, that is the 1800s, it was basically Methodism, and they did a lot to evangelize the United States and the, and the wilderness areas and so forth. They believed that in the 1800s, they were experiencing the second great awakening, the first great awakening in the United States would have been in the 1700s with men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. But these people believed in the 1800s they were experiencing the second great awakening, but they were preaching these holiness doctrines, and at least half of the preachers that were preaching in those days were women preachers. In the 20th century, this became Pentecostalism. Now, again, to be fair, not all Wesleyan holiness people like everything about the Pentecostal movement, but the Pentecostal movement of the 20th century was birthed out of the Wesleyan holiness movement, and so they believe those same doctrines. Interesting, it was in 1901, a man named Charles Parham in Topeka, Kansas, just down the road, was there preaching at Bethel Bible School, and a woman named Agnes Osmond spoke in tongues for the first time uh, in their movement. And that speaking in tongues, they immediately called the third work of grace. In other words, the first work of grace is when you get saved. The second work of grace is sometime when the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes you. And the third work of grace would be the evidence of that by speaking in tongues. And you need to have that third work of grace to know that you're truly saved. Well, then five years later in 1906, a student of Parham's, William Seymour, 
preaching in the Azusa Street Mission in Los Angeles, uh, the same thing happened, and all the people there began to speak in tongues. Now, from those beginnings started the Pentecostal movement. They believed they were experiencing another Pentecost. And so throughout the 20th century, now into the 21st century, we have seen and known the Pentecostal movement, but they basically are a Wesleyan holiness movement with the addition of a lot of signs and wonders and so forth. As a matter of fact, they speak about three waves of the Holy Spirit in the 20th century. The first wave was that Pentecostalism that began in 1901 and 1906. Then the second wave of the Spirit is the charismatic movement, which many of us lived through 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond, the charismatic movement. And now the third wave of the Spirit they call the signs and wonders movement begun much by the Vineyard Movement. They were responsible for the Toronto Blessing and other things like that. But the Asbury and the Wesleyan Holiness Movement have been doing what we're seeing here throughout the 20th century to one degree or another, depending on which branch of this holiness movement that you see. So Wesleyan Holiness has been, still is, a non-Orthodox movement by these doctrines, unbiblical, we would say. And we can't align ourselves with its doctrine or its emotionalism, which you see if you watch the videos there, that it's very emotional. And in some cases, like in Toronto and, and uh, Brownsville and others, laughing and barking like dogs and rolling on the floor. I don't know that that's going to happen in, at Asbury, but it all comes from the same roots. The question we'd have to ask at that point is, can the Holy Spirit bless unscriptural doctrine? Can this be of the Holy Spirit, and he chooses these doctrines to bless and no one else in such a way? Does that make sense to you and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit? So secondly, let me, if that's the historical picture here, let me give you a brief, very brief theological picture from our point of view, and, and then thirdly, a biblical picture from our point of view. Theologically, we as Baptists have been cessationists. To say that you are a cessationist means that you believe that the miraculous gifts, like of healing, speaking in tongues, prophecies, and so forth, ceased after the first century, that is, ceased with the closing of the New Testament and the uh, death of the apostles, so that we have never been a part of the miraculous movements, whether it's mild or whether it's uh, exploded. Uh, we believe those things uh, are not of the Holy Spirit, but they're of emotion and the rest. We are non-charismatic. So we have very much disagreed with this idea that you don't receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. You have to receive it sometime later by praying through and praying at the altar or, or whatever that is. And then that has to be verified by signs and wonders, whether speaking in tongues or, or things like that. We've been very non-charismatic. Uh, as Baptists, many, most Bible churches and, and other uh, churches uh, like ours also have been very non-charismatic. And we are non-holiness in that sense that we don't believe that you can be perfect in this world. Now, our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, all of our sins by Jesus Christ. But complete sanctification or perfectionism means you can live above sin 
for the rest of your life if you have these experiences that the Wesleyan Holiness Movement teaches. And we don't believe that the old nature is eradicated so that uh, you no longer have a sinful nature and you can be perfect and live that way for the rest of your life. So we've been non-holiness in that sense, though we very much believe in a holy life. We also are very much priority of the local church. We believe that God works in, in and through the local church by the preaching of his word, by men, not women, called to the ministry. We believe in the gospel preaching, not preaching sanctification, but preaching the gospel so that you can be sanctified. And we believe in preaching Jesus, not the Holy Spirit, though we teach much about the Holy Spirit. But when we do these things, then the Holy Spirit does his biblical work in people's hearts and with the message, messages that we preach. Then he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come, not necessarily giving signs and wonders and miracles and healings and things uh, like this. So theologically, that's where we are as Baptists, and that's where our church as Faith Baptist Church is. Now, biblically, I would just say this. There's only been one Pentecost. There's never been a second one. And what happened at Pentecost happened at Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection. It can't, you can't have another 50 day after the Lord's resurrection again. And so there's only one Pentecost. And when we read about it, they were sitting in seats and all in one accord when this happened. They weren't rolling on the floor, barking like dogs or doing anything like that. There's no such description of what at least I'm seeing in Asbury right now in any church in the New Testament that I read of. We don't see videos in the New Testament, but we read inspired language, and I don't see anything like that uh, going on in those churches that we read about in the New Testament. And so is the signs and wonders movement, is the Pentecostal phenomenon uh, true or false? Is it real or, or not real by the Holy Spirit? Keep this in mind, that as we come to the end of the age, there will be false things happening in this world that will deceive even the elect and deceive this world. I believe that the next time real miracles will happen will be when Jesus Christ returns the second time to set up his kingdom on this earth and the Holy Spirit is poured out. And as Joel said, then uh, you will see the miracles come upon people in a true and real sense. And until that time, we need to be very careful about what we see uh, as people say that they have these things. Most of the time throughout the 20th century, these miracles or healings and the rest have proved to be false. So this is my therefore. I say leave them alone. I know that I'm being somewhat critical uh, here tonight, but I'm simply saying what I, I think about what is going on. Uh, Jesus said there will be tares and wheat, and you can't always tell the difference. And uh, when one of his disciples came to him and said, well, they're, they're not with you doing the same things you're doing, he said, leave them alone. You know, uh, if they're not with us uh, or against us, they're with us in the sense that they're not hurting us, we'll go on and do our ministry. And they never did join Jesus either. I say also to this church, let's not give up on pure doctrine, pure New Testament doctrine. 
doing what we see in the New Testament, doing what the New Testament pictures that churches do. It's not very emotional what we do, but it's right. Your emotionalism is with you. You can be as emotional as you actually are. You don't have to put that on. You don't have to beg God uh, for something through your emotions. Let's just have our pure New Testament doctrine in our churches. Our worship that we do is what conservative people have practiced throughout the church age. It is what churches have practiced for hundreds and hundreds of years, what we're doing right here tonight. And not only that, but I've been in churches all around the world in, in, with our missionaries and in mission churches, and you know what they're doing? Exactly what we're doing here tonight. And so let's not give up on what the New Testament shows and what we have done and what our Christian people around the world have done. Our worship is what our mission churches do and what we do, just plain, simple, singing, praying, and preaching and applying that to our lives. Our worship is New Testament worship. And when we see something that doesn't match what we think is New Testament worship, I say, leave them alone. And that's God's business, not ours. And we won't uh, change what we do because of what they do. So I hope this brief explanation will help. I hope it will help put this, what, what you see, in a historical and proper context, and I hope, secondly, that it will keep you from being unduly persuaded, even alarmed, as if there were some new thing that you need to change and gravitate toward. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you then for the New Testament. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who lives within us at the moment of our salvation. Thank you, Father, that we have all that we need that pertains to life and godliness. So, Father, bless us to be kind, gentle, loving, but truthful people. And I pray, Father, you would be glorified in this age in which we live. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.